About 15 years ago, there was a crisis on the streets of Great Britain. The problem was hoodies. Young people who wore hooded tops pulled up over their heads, who seemed to instill panic in the older and more seemingly respectable members of the public. Shopping centres banned hoodies from the premises. Politicians pledged to crack down on hoodies on the streets. When the newly elected opposition leader David Cameron struck a more sympathetic tone in a speech, he was mocked by the tabloids as wanting to hug a hoodie. Hoodies were a menace and a danger. Well, imagine my shock one afternoon, therefore, when I was walking home from school in the snow and seeing a hoodie up ahead with a giant snowball in his hand. He threw it, it hit me on the face, and as it struck, it bounced my glasses off and I lost them onto the path below. Well, what happened next surprised me. This guy, this hoodie, he came over and got on his hands and knees and found my glasses. And he handed them to me and he apologised at great length for what he'd done. If I'm honest, I'd rather he hadn't chucked a snowball at my head to begin with. But once he had, it was a striking and memorable moment for me. This living stereotype of all that was wrong with society had quite kindly and politely come to my rescue. As I received help from him, I was almost hugged by a hoodie. And I think that's the sort of thing Jesus has in mind, as he tells us the story that we're looking at in our Bible passage today. If you're looking for a tabloid newspaper headline of it, hugged by a hoodie would not be a bad one. If you know Luke's Gospel, you know that Luke often focuses on the parts of Jesus' teaching where he contrasts the insider with the outsider, the seemingly okay with God with the apparently far from God. And here, as he often does, Jesus subverts our expectations and he challenges our assumptions. This is a story more complex than it's often given credit for. I've called it the one about receiving help. And I'm going to draw out two lessons from it. We cannot limit our obedience to God's word and we cannot fulfill our obedience to God's word. So firstly, we cannot limit our obedience to God's word because God's word is the context of this story as Jesus tells it. When Luke reports the parables of Jesus, he usually tells us the context, who Jesus is talking to, who the parable is aimed at. And in this case, we are told there in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law could mean one of several things. If you've got an image of a barrister wearing a wig or a judge in a gown, cast it out of your mind. This is a professional religious person, an expert, so he presumes, in the Old Testament law of God. And his role in the community is somewhere between an academic Bible expert and a busybody moral policeman. In theory, his job is to help the people to obey God's commandments. In practice, he would have spent his days telling everybody else what they were doing wrong. And it's in that spirit that he comes to Jesus. 
Jesus, this itinerant preacher who was gaining a following for himself, he was already seen as a threat to the established religious leaders. It's in chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, at the very start of Jesus' public preaching ministry, that the people first reject his message and attempt to kill him for it. So, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His question seems innocent enough, but his motivation isn't. He has come to test Jesus to see what he is doing wrong. Now, before we leap to judge this expert, we must have the humility to recognize our own attitude in his actions. Because isn't that the spirit with which we can find ourselves going to Jesus to test him, to see if we can trip him up, to assume that we know better how the world works? Do we not go to Jesus and ask, did you really say? That stuff about money which you're always going on about, how we're meant to be generous with it, to give it to those in need, to treat our possessions as if they're ultimately given to us by God to be used for his service. Did you really say that? All that stuff about salvation, which you said you came to achieve, how it's only ever freely given, how my efforts to earn it count nothing at all in my favour, how you would forgive those who I would consider unforgivable. Did you really say that? Or here in this passage, that stuff about loving others despite our differences, how people who seem far away are being brought near to your kingdom, how you call your people to self-denial and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Did you really say that? We test Jesus. This man tests Jesus. But if it wasn't for his bad attitude, The question he asks Jesus is actually a very good one. Perhaps it's the great evangelistic open door. What we'd give for a friend or a colleague to ask us this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as he so often does in answer to a question, Jesus asks a different question in return. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? In other words, you're the so-called expert, you tell me. Elsewhere, Jesus summarizes the Old Testament law himself, and he gives this answer. So the expert in the law does know something. Jesus teases it out of him. But here's the crucial issue. This man, this expert in the law, has not understood the implications of the law for him. I suppose you could say that I was a little bit like that as a child in Sunday school. I knew the answers on the Bible quiz. I could get a pretty good response on my sword drills. Did you ever have to do that? You know, when you you tuck your Bible under your arm and someone shouts out a chapter and a verse and the first person to find it and start reading wins a point or a prize. I learned things about Jesus from the Bible. But it took me, it is taking me, much longer to live the Jesus way 
as revealed in the Bible. And that's the crucial issue for this so-called expert. He knows what God's word is, but he doesn't know what God's word is for. He doesn't know how it ought to shape his life. And therefore, he tries to limit his obedience to it. So he says to Jesus, uh, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Or in other words, and who is worthy of my love? Or in some other words still, and what are the limits of my love? Another question. Another reply from Jesus that doesn't fit our mold for evangelism. This time, instead of bouncing the question back to the man, Jesus tells him a story. I wonder if that's an evangelistic strategy you've ever tried. Here is Jesus' story. A man gets attacked on a dangerous road. Uh, More than snowballs from a hoodie, this is a robbed, beaten and left for dead situation. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is rocky and windy, the perfect location for bandits to lie in wait and to spring an attack. And it matters that Jesus never tells us who the victim is. He's stripped of his clothes and therefore any signifier of social status or caste or creed. He is an anybody cast here as a nobody. And this is a perfect ethical dilemma for an expert in the law to answer. He'd be used to hearing hypothetical situations like this and giving his applications of the law into them. How would a religious leader respond to this man in need? And you can almost feel the tension as you imagine the expert in the law poised to give his answer when Jesus continues his story. And as he does, he explains precisely how a religious person would respond to a man in need. A priest comes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We assume he's finishing his stint of service in the temple and is on home assignment for a little bit. And how does he, this professional representative of God among the people, how does he respond to seeing a man beaten and left for dead? Verse 31, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Jesus doesn't tell us why the priest in his story would choose to ignore a man clearly in need. We can only speculate. Here are three possible reasons. Perhaps he was lazy. You know, helping hurt people is time-consuming. If you're in a hurry or if you're tired from your hard work and service, you might not leap at the opportunity to put yourself out for somebody else. Or or perhaps he was afraid. The robbers who did that to this man could easily do the same to him. Or worse still, it could be a ruse set up to trick a naive passerby into a position of vulnerability where he could be ambushed by others lying in wait. 
When you feel weak and vulnerable, you might not leap at the opportunity to put yourself in harm's way for somebody else. Perhaps, though, this religious man chose to look away for apparently religious reasons. For a priest to touch the dead is to go into a period of ritual uncleanness. And just like those who criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, perhaps he thought that his ritual cleanness as a priest superseded his call as a shepherd for lost and hurting people. You know, the model of a good shepherd, as the Lord speaks of himself in Ezekiel, is to bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. It is telling that this religious leader didn't have the time or the inclination to fulfill his calling to care for wounded sheep. He had other priorities, but they were not of God. You can know the Bible backwards and still not live it. The Victorian Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon said this, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. Well, laziness, fear, seemingly religious reasons, whatever it is, the implications are clear. The very person who ought to have come to the injured man's aid most committedly chose instead to look the other way and walk by. And it's a rebuke to us. To us who claim to know the Bible back to front, but who are not so quick to live it out. It is also a rebuke to any religious leaders whose calling is to bind up the injured and to strengthen the weak, but who are more concerned by their ministries or reputations than looking to and caring for the most vulnerable among them. If this parable of Jesus has a particularly pointed message for anyone who hears it, it must be a polemic against such religious leaders as those. They are not living the way of Christ. And as if to hammer the point home, the next person Jesus tells us passes by and looks away is a Levite, another religious professional, and another person who did not live the message that they were taught to know. We cannot limit our obedience to God's word, whatever our excuses might be. Which brings us to our second lesson from this parable and the final one. And we see it as we encounter the title character of the parable as we know it, the Good Samaritan. It is this, we cannot fulfill our obedience to God's word. As Samaritans were the hoodies of their day, looked down upon by the apparently more respectable Jewish people, considered less refined in background and in morality, the archetypal religious outsiders. And that is who Jesus chooses to introduce into his story as the third passerby. The two religious professionals have shirked their duty and turned a blind eye to a man in need. Surely this guy will treat him even worse, no? Well, you know the story. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This outsider acts as the perfect neighbor. And consider as he does the potential cost to himself. There's the risk of ambush and attack by further robbers. There's the cost of his luxury first aid kit. There's the inconvenience of walking as the injured man rode on his donkey. There's the promise to pay the price of board and lodgings until the injured man was better again, not knowing the final sum or whether the innkeeper was going to con him out of a small fortune. In summary, the Samaritan risked his life and went to great inconvenience only to write a blank check for a stranger who he saw to be in need. So Jesus asks the expert in the law to deliberate. And it's not a trick question. The answer seems fairly obvious to each of us. Who was the better neighbor? And funny, isn't it, that the expert cannot bring himself to mention that the man who showed neighborly love was a Samaritan. He says instead, vaguely, the one who had mercy. Jesus says to him in response, verse 37, go and do likewise. That is love like the Samaritan did with a costly love, with a risky love, with a reckless love even. Write blank checks for people in need. And if it stung the expert in the law, doesn't it sting us? One of the writer G.K. Chesterton's famous sayings is this, the Christian idea has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Who is up to such a task? Who can love like this, give like this, show mercy like this? There is a danger as we hear this parable that we fall into the trap of the expert in the law to whom Jesus taught it. He came to Jesus first seeking to test him and then seeking to justify himself. And we might find ourselves doing the same. What must I do? Even as Jesus issues that challenge, go and do likewise, we can feel the discomfort because however hard we try, can we really begin to believe that we are able to live like this? Always, all of the time? Do we have the resources in us on our own to give of ourselves this freely? Here's some advice I once heard. Try it. Just for a day, just tomorrow, have a go. See how you'll do. And if you succeed, you'll have nothing more to learn from Jesus' parables in this little series as we go through them. You see, the context of the parable shows us how we want to live. Testing Jesus, justifying ourselves, making our own rules, it shows our desire to limit our obedience to God's word. The parable itself 
shows us the way we should live. It shows what full obedience to the call of Christ might look like. It'll look like loving sacrificially those from whom we stand to receive no benefit at all in return. But when all is said and done, the parable truly shows us how we can live. Not to place ourselves first of all in the shoes of the priest or the Levite or even the Samaritan, on the Jericho Road, but to put ourselves in the place of the bruised and beaten man who had been robbed and left for dead. It shows us what rescue looks like. This parable is deep down the one about receiving help. It's about radical generosity, yes, but radical generosity that is received, first of all, before it is given. This is a parable to challenge our pride, not to puff it up, It does not, first of all, ask us to find someone different to ourselves whom we can help out in their hour of need. It asks us first to recognize the one who has come to help us in our hour of need and to receive from him what we could not do for ourselves. We cannot limit our obedience to God's word, no, nor can we fulfill our obedience to God's word, not on our own. So thank God we have a saviour who can and who did. For this is nothing less than what the Lord Jesus himself has done for us. So as we close now, a prayer to put us in the place of the injured person on the Jericho Road. Let us pray that we might receive first this kind of neighbour love. And then and only then to go and do Likewise, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who came to us in our time of need to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, who wrote a blank check for us. Father, we pray that we would be those who receive his help. And then, Father, We pray, help us to love like he loved. Help us to go and do likewise. Not for our sake, not to justify ourselves, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus and for his name, in which we pray. Amen.